The children are dismissed for um, children's worship. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. And uh, we'll continue our study in Zechariah. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, if you start at Matthew and you go back two books, you will be in Zechariah. Zechariah, chapter 3. The, the notes are in the bulletin for you to follow along. I'd like to begin by reading... Zechariah chapter 3, the first five verses. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a wonderful, amazing, and exciting passage about the power of your gospel, about what you have done for sinners. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, that you would grant us insight, help us to see Christ, help us to marvel at the lavish grace that we have received from you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of uh, the recurring and popular themes in movies and television is the courtroom drama. Um, I don't know what's popular nowadays. I remember growing up watching Columbo. Anyone here? Columbo? No? Or um, Perry Mason. That was a little bit the end of... I'm not quite that old, but I remember seeing some reruns on Nick at Night. Um, And I'm sure nowadays they're the equivalents, the courtroom drama. And one of the reasons is courtrooms are dramatic. They're dramatic scenes. In fact, when the Bible talks about sin, it uses one of two primary metaphors. The first is unfaithfulness. When you see the language of idolatry, when you read through Ezekiel and God calls Israel an unfaithful, whoring wife. That is the strong language Ezekiel uses. That's one way of speaking about sin. It's, it's It's a big, common, biblical way. Relationship breaking, unfaithfulness, betrayal. But an equally, if not more, central metaphor that scriptures use for speaking of sin is that of The law, the courtroom, the judge, the just sentence. You read through Romans, that's the primary metaphor Paul is using there. And in that understanding, we we get that God is many things, and one of the things that he is is a righteous judge. The book of Hebrews tells us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, And so this picture, this courtroom picture, I think resonates with each and every one of us. There's a very real sense in which we will have this experience. We will stand before the judge. Now, in Zechariah's situation, Zechariah has been given night visions, if you remember. He's the prophet to Israel returned from the captivity, a small, feeble remnant of a once great people, attempting to rebuild a small, feeble temple which once was great. Discouraged, enemies around them, they gave up. They stopped working. And God sent Haggai, and he called them to repentance. And he sent Zechariah, and his opening message was, repent, repent, return to me, and I will return to you. And, and something amazing happens. The people respond, revival breaks out, and then God pours out blessings. This is a book, as I've said before, which is, full of gracious and comforting words. Chapter 1, verse 13. It's a book of encouragement. When God's people will turn to him, when God's people will trust in him, when God's people will forsake their wicked ways, and when they will return to him, he returns to them, and he pours out blessings on them. And in one night, Zechariah receives eight visions from the Lord. 
Visions of encouragement. Visions promising the judgment of their enemies. Visions meant to strengthen them. And today, I think we hit the climax, the center point of those visions. Chapter 3. We're going to look at this one vision in two weeks. There's so much going on here. As we study the priest with dirty clothes. The story of the priest with dirty clothes. Or like I have sort of subtitled this, How the Gospel Really Works. And so we're going to look at this in, in three points. With the drama of the courtroom. This is a dramatic text. There's a lot of courtroom drama and we'll dive in with a heavenly court assembles. Point one, a heavenly court assembles. And that's verse one. Then he showed me, now the he here could be the interpreting angel, but he's not mentioned in this entire passage. It's equally possible the Lord God is the one now showing Zechariah this vision, whoever the he references. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And so we've got the setup. Here's the scene. It's a courtroom scene. The judge hasn't been mentioned. I think it's assumed to be the living God. And so who are the players in this, in this situation? Well, first there's the accused. There's Joshua the high priest, a very literal and historic character. You can read Haggai, mentions him by name. You can read Ezra 2.2. He was one of those who returned from Babylon. He was born in exile in Babylon, but he is of the priestly tribe. He's a son of Aaron. More than that, he's a Zadokian priest. He's a descendant of Zadok, who Ezekiel promised would be those would be the temples. That subset of the priesthood would be those who served in the temple. He's a real person. And, and in Ezra 3, 2, we're told that he helped rebuild the altar. He, he's the high priest, or he's the contender for high priest. He's a very real person. And yet, I think we see that he represents three, at least three things here. First, he represents himself. Part of this vision, or a big part of this vision, is confirming to Israel, who may doubt, there may be some grumbling. How can a man born in a foreign land serve in the Holy of Holies? Hasn't he been permanently corrupted? Hasn't he been permanently and irretrievably tainted by his birth and his time in Babylon? How can this man be the high priest? Part of what this vision is going to do is make it clear to Israel, no, this is whom the Lord has chosen. This is confirmation and installation for Joshua the high priest himself. That phrase um, used in verse 3, that he is like a, a brand plucked from the fire, is a reference or a direct quotation to Amos 4.11. And there, it's the only other place this phrase is used, the Lord speaking to Israel says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. What he's saying is this, I I gave you over to judgment, but at the last second, I pulled you out. You can picture the, you know, something's, a a stick's in the fire and it's about to be burned and be consumed. It gets pulled out and all it is is smoking with some embers on it. And he's saying that's that's what Joshua is. The, The nation was given over to Nebuchadnezzar. Usually when that happens, nations disappear. And God pulled Joshua, he pulled this remnant of Israel out from Babylon. Yeah, there's, they've got some smoke on them. Yes, they've got some soot on them. The Lord has pulled them out of the fire. And so here he is, this brand plucked out of Babylon, representing himself. But, but more than representing himself, as the high priest, and this is your second point, he's standing there representing the priesthood. Representing the priesthood. Listen to Exodus 28, 36 to 38. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear the guilt of any of the holy things from the people of Israel consecrated as their holy gifts. The the whole notion of priesthood, we've talked about this before. Prophets stand in between God and people for God. So prophets position themselves in between the Lord and people to speak to the people for God. Priests position themselves between the people and God, facing God for the people. They intercede for the people. They make sacrifices for the people. And in some sense, then, they, they bear the sins of the people. Numbers 18.1 
So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity connected with your priesthood. And so as the high priest was also on trial here, it's not just Joshua's ability to function as the high priest. There's an implicit question about the legitimacy of the priesthood itself. The, the, the temple worship stopped for 70 years. There, there was no functioning priesthood. And here as they begin to rebuild the temple, part of the question in people's minds are, okay, by what right, by what authority, how are we going to get this thing going again? And so Joshua represents himself. He represents the priesthood as well. Thirdly, I think we'll see, he also represents really the entire nation of Israel. If the priests, if the high priest represents the priests, the priests represent the people. I mean, after all, in Exodus 19.6, God had called Israel at Sinai to be a kingdom of priests. The nation of Israel is supposed to serve an a intercessionary function between the other nations. We looked at that last week. And we, we understand that this understanding is clear because next week we'll see in verse 9, jump down to 3.9, the end of the verse, the Lord of hosts declares, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So this vision of one man has implications of sin removal for all the people of Israel. So to remind you again, Joshua here in this vision represents himself. There's a very real sense in which should this man be the Lord's anointed, the Lord's high priest? Yes, he should. Is the priesthood valid? Can it function after the temple's been destroyed, after they've been in Babylon? Yes, it can. Can, it, can the nation function? We're going to see, yes, it can. And I'd, I'd, I'd add a fourth subpoint then, that as we see how salvation works, even though, as I've said, I do not believe that the church is Israel, the way salvation works for Joshua, the way the gospel works for the priesthood, the way the gospel works for the Israel, the nation, is exactly the way the gospel works for you and myself. And so we, in some senses, we can see ourselves here. Because what has happened and the reasoning and the accusations and, and the, the redemption that we see is exactly what the Lord offers us and exactly for those of us who are in Christ what we have received. So that's the accused. Next, let's look at the defense. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is sort of the defense attorney. Um, a more Hebrew concept would be the advocate for the defense. So you've got the accused, you've got the defense, and we've got the prosecution. Or the accuser. The, sort of the Hebrew concepts would be the advocate and the accuser. We have the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney. Those would be our nomenclature. And Satan has many names. He's the tempter, the serpent of old. He's a roaring lion. But he's also the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. And you think of Job chapters 1 and 2. where He's accusing, insinuating Job's character, suggesting that Job is not serving the Lord for righteous reasons. So we've got our cast. So I want you to picture this because this is dramatic. We zoom into the court scene. The judge isn't mentioned directly. It's assumed to be Yahweh, the living God. There's Joshua. There's the angel of the Lord. And there's Satan, the accuser. Now, what normally happens, what's the starting play in a courtroom scene? Who, who gets to speak first normally? If you're watching Perry Mason, if you're watching Columbo or whatever, who, who speaks first? Who makes their case first? Prosecution. But point two, something astonishing happens. Notice this, something astonishing happens. The divine advocate intervenes. There, there is no trial. R read this, read it again. The accuser never speaks a word. He, he doesn't get to make his case. He doesn't get to bring his charge. Before a sound comes out of his voice, before the first beginning of his point is made, the divine advocate, the Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord, intervenes. We see the pre-incarnate Christ, and that is as a typo, speaks. The pre-incarnate Christ speaks. Here's further evidence, by the way, that this advocate is divine. Maybe you, like me, were a little confused the first few times you read this because the Lord said, okay, the Lord rebuke you. That's kind of confusing. 
I mean, normally people don't speak about themselves in a third party. You know, Jeremy is very blessed to be here today. That, that's not normally how we talk. And not only that, the Lord hasn't been mentioned in this passage yet. He's not one of the characters on the stage. What's going on here is the angel of the Lord is speaking, and then Zechariah speaks about the angel of the Lord as the Lord. That's not uncommon. If you go to Exodus with the burning bush, same thing happens there. So the angel of the Lord is divine, and the angel of the Lord, the Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. So here's this setup. There's this, there's this tension. We're in a courtroom. There's, there's an accuser, the best prosecuting attorney in the universe. Amen? Best defense in existence. And what's remarkable, and there's a couple twists in this that are dramatic, is you're expecting a charge. You're expecting accusations. He's called the accuser. He doesn't get to speak. I want you to get this. The Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord, we've already seen his zeal for God's people. We saw him in chapter 1 cry out. Cry out in chapter 1, verse 12. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? He is passionate. He is burdened for his people. And here, he, he is so zealous. He's so passionate about his people. He, he won't even let the accuser speak. And, and so we get now to the second point, point 2B. This this ironic twist is the prosecution is prosecuted. You're expecting the defense to get hammered. You're expecting the defense to be accused. Who gets accused here? The accuser. The prosecution is prosecuted. He never gets to make his accusations. He never gets to speak. He is rebuked. It reminds me of, of what Paul says in Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is God who justifies? Who is to condemn? And the, the implied answer is no one. No one has the right to condemn those whom God has justified. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the hand of the right Father, who indeed is interceding for us. I don't know if Paul had this passage in mind. Here is Lord Jesus, the right hand of the Father, interceding, stepping in, intervening for his people. But I want you to notice next the basis of the rebuke. Why? On what basis does this prosecuting attorney get rebuked? Why does he get prosecuted? Why is he silenced? You can think of a number of reasons. Satan, you're wicked. That's not the reason given. By virtue of rebuking him, he's implying he's done something wicked. You might think, Satan, this is a person who's made a decision for Christ. And that may very well be true. I, I believe Joshua was in a right relationship with God. That's not the reason given. I want you to notice the basis with which the Lord Jesus rebukes Satan. And it's point C. God's choice stands. God's choice stands. Look at that there in, in verse 3. Now, jo no, in verse 2, I'm sorry. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And, and, and if you've been paying attention in, in Joshua, this notion of God choosing has, has been all over the place. Go back to the first vision in chapter 1, verse 17. The culmination of the vision of the rider on the red horse. Zechariah is to cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall overflow again with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Choose Jerusalem. Or chapter 2, verse 2. Then I said to the, this is the, this is the third vision, the man with the measuring line. Then I said, what are you going where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who was talking to me came forward and another came forward to meet him. And he said to him, run, say to the young man, Jerusalem should be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude 
of people and livestock in her midst. And I'll be over her a wall of fire all around her, declares the Lord. And I'll be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee. And down to verse 12. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Do you notice the importance of God's choice thus far in this book? What he's saying is this, and I know we can struggle with the biblical doctrines of election and predestination. I know these can be divisive issues. But the Lord Jesus is rebuking Satan, not based on Joshua's choice of the Lord, but the Lord's choice of Joshua and his people. You got to get that. The, the, The confidence that you and I can have that the accuser will never get to even open his mouth when he would speak against us is not the confidence in our faith. Oh, Satan, be rebuked. Jeremy has strong faith. That, that, that hope, I don't take hope in that. I take hope in the fact that the Lord has chosen me. As we sing, he will hold me fast. And I want to just look at some passages that emphasize this. This is no small biblical teaching, and the Lord wants this truth that undergirding, yes, we choose him. Yes, we turn to him in faith. Yes, No one's forcing us to choose him. Yes, everyone is invited. Yes, no one will be turned away. But at the end of the day, the bedrock foundation of salvation is God's choice. Listen to some passages. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. It is not because you are more in number than the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Israel, why does God love you? It's because he loves you. Love that. He loves you because he chose you, and he chose you because he loves you. Or John 1, 12 to 13, a passage I'm sure many of you are very familiar with. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, So how did you become a child of God? Now, he says in there, you've got to receive him. You've got to believe. You've got to trust him. Amen, amen, amen. But ultimately, what's the basis of that birth? Is it your will, your choice? He says it clearly. Not the will of the flesh, not the will of man, not of bloods, meaning who your parents were, descent. But God. Or even more plainly, and turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 1. I know there's an ABF that just went through Ephesians, but you can't mistake this in chapter 1. What I want you to see is this emphasis on divine sovereignty, this emphasis on God's choosing love is no small doctrine. I'm not, I'm not finding some little verse in some obscure corner in the Bible and trying to lift it up as, as a big deal. This is put front and center as a big deal in Scripture. The Apostle Paul likes to write big sentences. I, I would, Daniel said they're not run-on sentences. When the Apostle Paul writes big sentences, they're not run-on. They're perfectly grammatical. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But I will point you to the fact that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in Greek. One sentence, okay? And this is going to cover every aspect of your salvation. You're going to see every member of the Trinity at work in this passage. And I'm going to read it with a slight emphasis on certain words. If you're tracking me, we're going to have some emphasis on the right syllable. Um, because we show up in this passage... But I want you to notice when I read this, are we doing things or are things being done to us? Are we active in this passage or are we passive? Are we the actors or are we the acted upon? Do we receive or do we give? Let's read this. And I'm going to emphasize the words that refer to the Lord. Okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the glory, the praise of his glory. You see all that's done and it's done to us. It's done to us. We are acted upon. We are chosen. We are predestined. We are blessed. And it's all about his will and his choice and his purpose in him, for him. You can't escape that. This is no minor point. The majority of Ephesians chapter 1 is making this point emphatically. Turn back to Romans 9. One other passage. The Bible is unashamed in this. And, and I got to make this point because the encouragement that the Lord wants you to receive from this truth will not be yours if you doubt this truth. Remember, the basis of the rebuke, the, the reason the accuser must shut his mouth is not because of what Joshua did. And it's not because of the decision he made. It was about the decision the Lord made. His choice. His purpose. That's the basis which shuts the mouth of the devil. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. See, not only does God ultimately choose, God has ordained things to make that point explicit. That's what Paul's going to say here. God set this up to put on display, to make plain this point. Romans chapter 9, verse 10 through 16. And not only so... But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. I want you to get what Paul's saying. God specifically chose an example where you can't argue merit. Two babies in the womb, neither one of them's done anything good or bad. God chose that in order with the reason. Why did God choose this? Because he wanted to make the point clear. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses. Now we're back to Exodus 34. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So back, back to Zechariah. The Lord chose Jerusalem. Now, yes, at Sinai, Israel chose the Lord. And there is no salvation where there are not people turning to the Lord in faith. But ultimately, what undergirds and secures and guarantees that the Lord's sheep will come in is his choice of them, not their choice of him. One commentator says this, speaking of this passage and this truth, this shows us what a difference the doctrines of grace, like election, make in the life of a Christian believer. Instead of our own mouths being shut in guilt, it is Satan's accusing lips that are stopped. Surely Spurgeon, he means Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, surely Spurgeon was not wrong to point out that when God wants to shut the mouth of the devil, he preaches to him the doctrines we call Calvinism. He adds, quote, now we're quoting Spurgeon, if God hath chosen his people, then it is of no use for Satan to attempt their overthrow. Christ does not here meet Satan with ifs and buts, but he meets him with the high mysterious truth which was settled before the world began. 
He throws, as it were, a chain into his teeth and bids him champ on it until it breaks his teeth. God hath chosen Jerusalem. Let that be rebuke enough. God chose this one. Silence in the courtroom. Bailiffs, take him away. That's the drama of this court scene. He doesn't even get to speak. You don't get to bring a charge against those whom the Lord chose. And you know that the Lord chose you when after you've come to faith in him. When you come to faith in him, instead of saying, wow, I'm so smart, I figured it out. Wow, I'm so good. I, you rather say, hallelujah, you chose me. You, you knew me before I was formed in the womb. And you called me while I was your enemy. And you sent your son to die for me while I hated you. Hallelujah. And on that basis, we have security. My security, we talk about eternal security. My security is not that I will continue to keep myself believing. I will make myself believe. My faith is strong. It will not get weak. That is not my, my assurance. My assurance is he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. He will hold me fast. The song we sang earlier, what you complete is completely done. When our hearts accuse us about our sin. Now there's times where our hearts accuse us rightly as a Christian when we sin. We need to confess it to the Lord. The Holy Spirit will drive us to the cross. The Holy Spirit will again, as in 1 John 1, 9, say your feet are dirty. You need to confess. You need them cleaned. But once you've done that, once you've dealt with your sin, once you've confessed it, the, the accuser will continue to accuse. And that's when we need to trust in God's promises, his work, his choice stands. His choice stands. Well, we're not done with the dramatic irony of this passage yet. There's one great twist coming. You see, if, if, if this were Columbo, right, you can picture this in Columbo. I don't know how many Columbos are him in a courtroom, but I, I just love, I love Peter Falk. And you know, the, the, the uh, star witness of the prosecution takes a stand, and he's confident. And the, the, the scene, you're assuming this poor defendant, he's about to get hammered. And then, you know, Columbo says, Your Honor, I just have one more question. And that's always when it turns, right? Just, just, and he's about, he's, he's about ready to sit down. Like, so he's over here, and he's like, yeah. Your Honor, I have one more question. And that's when it turns out that this star witness for the prosecution is in fact the villain, the criminal mastermind, right? And that's, that's the big twist. And we've seen something like that. The, the, the prosecution's you know, ready, he's standing there, you can imagine taking a deep breath. And the first dramatic action is the defense attorney silences and rebukes him. The judge chose him. There's a second piece of drama, because now as the camera pulls out, see, in the, in, the, in the Columbo example, the rebuke is based on the fact that the defendant is innocent. This is a false accusation, right? When you, when you see this in courtroom dramas, it's all about, they got it wrong. And so, your accusations are false. He's innocent. You're guilty. But now when the camera zooms out, look at verse 3. See, we know, we've read this, we know this, but when, notice when, Zechariah adds in now this detail. Look at verse 3. We can assume the, the, the prosecutor's either silenced or he's been taken away. He never shows up again in this passage. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. Only after the defense attorney has silenced the prosecutor do we then learn his defendant is in fact guilty. It should be stunning, unexpected. Point three, a guilty defendant is honored. A guilty defendant is honored only after. We'd expect, yeah, that's right, you'd be quiet, you accuser. He's innocent. Oh, wait, he's not innocent. He's filthy. Do you see the drama of this? This is, this is an amazing passage for so many reasons. It's unexpected. You don't expect the prosecuting attorney to get accused. And when he does get accused, you expect the defendant to be innocent, and he's not. The ESV says wearing filthy garments, that hardly does justice to the filth described here. It, it's similar 
to the passage in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our deeds are like a polluted garment. No, it's true. Joshua is soiled from head to toe. He's been corrupted. He's been infested. He's been tainted. He is dirty. The priest with dirty clothes. Point A, the defendant is in fact guilty. Guilty as sin. How do we make sense of this? I mean, if, if this were, first of all, this wouldn't be Columbo, but if it were to be Columbo, then a great legal tragedy has taken place. Columbo let an innocent man free. Come on, Columbo, you're not supposed to do that. And thankfully, there's a few more verses that help explain this. But I just love how we don't even get told he's guilty until after the prosecution is silenced. The defendant is, in fact, guilty. As we talked about how this passage explains how the gospel works. It's crucial you get this. It's crucial you understand what's going on here. Because there are those who, as they understand, we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ to be, to call it, quote, a legal fiction. How can a righteous God... Pardon, nay, honor the guilty. Well, this passage shows us how. Point two. His sins are removed, not overlooked. Let me say that again. His sins are removed, not overlooked. It's part of the problem with our culture these days. We don't have much of a notion of forgiveness. What's most likely someone to say when you say you're sorry? Oh, don't worry about it. It was nothing. That's actually not pardon. That's not pardon. That's, it's not important. We hear that enough, and we think then that surely must be what God does with our sin. God says, eh, it's no big deal, okay. No, no, God's far too righteous for that type of nonsense to fly in his courtroom. No, there's a real problem here. The angel of the Lord has silenced the prosecuting attorney and now we find out his, his, his client is guilty of sin. How does that work out? Well, keep reading. And Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I have to. So the angel of the Lord takes responsibility. If the angel of the Lord is going to rebuke the accuser, and if the accuser is dead to rights with his accusations, the angel of the Lord is the one who then has to resolve the tension. There is real tension here. He's guilty. And I want you to see the sins aren't ignored. The sins are removed, not ignored. Now this, this passage does not explain how that entirely works out. What we get from this passage is the angel of the Lord, whoever he is, and he appears to be God, the angel of the Lord will both be the one who intervenes as an advocate on behalf of the sinner, and the angel of the Lord in some sense will be instrumental in the removal of the sinner's sin. That's as far as we get, but those of us who live this side of the cross, we know a bit more of the story. Turn to Romans 3. Paul puts this same dilemma out for us in Romans chapter 3. And I want to fill in some of the gospel pieces. So for Zechariah's audience, all they know is this divine person, the angel of the Lord, is both the advocate who intercedes, silencing the devil, and he is the one responsible for the removal of sin. That's, that's all they know. That's as far as they can get at that point. We get a bit more. And I want you to get this. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is what C.S. Lewis calls the great exchange. And you've got to see the legal problem that the gospel and the cross resolves. Romans 3, 23 to 26. We'll start with a passage I'm sure nearly all of us know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, pause. Propitiation is, a, is that which satisfies wrath. It is the thing or the object or the action which satisfies wrath. 
put forward Jesus as the thing, the person, sacrifice, which was sufficient to remove anger. Put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, or this was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to unpack that because that that is key. That that is the heart of how the gospel works. That is the heart of how God saves because God's got a problem. He has already forgiven people. He has already said, I mean, just let's think of a good example. David, King David, kills a man, sleeps with his wife, and makes his army complicit. And Nathan comes to David, and he rebukes David, and out of David's mouth comes confession, comes repentance. And out of Nathan's mouth, the Lord has forgiven you. He's removed your sin. You're not going to die. But I want you to imagine Uriah's dad is standing by. It's your son that this man killed. It's your daughter-in-law this man date-raped. You think to yourself, what do you, what do you mean you've taken away his sin? That was my son, my daughter-in-law. What type of righteous God just, you can still be king. You're a man after my own heart. How, this is terrible. And Paul recognizes that tension. He's saying the reason Jesus was publicly crucified was to make it clear to the watching universe that God himself was just. God himself was consistent with his own character. To say another, played by his own rules. He put him forward as a propitiation by blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in former times he had passed over sins. It's as if to say to Uriah's Dad, just wait. In a few hundred years, this will make sense, your eyes, Dad. In a few hundred years, the scales will be balanced. I know right now, it looks like injustice has been done. Justice will be done. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. I'm going to tell you a story that was very helpful for me in, in understanding the gospel. When I was, when I was the summer of 1999... And I was convicted by the spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment. I came across a cassette tape of a classical guitarist, Christopher Parkening. He's excellent. But I had gone to a concert of his in um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And he'd given out these free tapes. And on one side was him playing, I think it was Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring. And on the other side was his Christian testimony. And it was just kicking around in my closet. And I in the tape deck. I'm working through my Bible. I'm pretty convinced at this point I'm not a Christian because I'm reading the New Testament as it's describing what Christians look like and what they love and what they believe. And I'm going, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And as I'm trying to wrap my head to understand the gospel, and you got to understand no one was preaching to me. There's no teacher there. It was the Holy Spirit, the Word, and me, and a lot of fear and trembling. I listened to this, and, and Christopher Parkening explained the gospel, explained it this way. He gave an analogy. We, we use this sometimes with the youth. But here, this is explaining it. I think this is helpful of how, what, what Paul is saying here. Um, there was a king once, a good and just king in a faraway land. And the king was a righteous and good king and his subjects loved him. And he ruled well and wisely, but he had enemies. And one day it was discovered that someone was stealing money from the king's treasury. And so a placard was put up around the castle and around the countryside saying that if whoever was stealing and embezzling money would come forward, they would receive a punishment of 10 lashes. That was the just punishment in that kingdom. No one came forward. Another week goes by. More money's missing. Now this placard goes up. If someone will come forward and, and confess to embezzlement and theft, they'll receive 20 public lashings. No one comes forward, and so on to 30, 40. We're now at a point where 40 lashes, that was a maximum you could give someone in the law. That, that would bring a strong, healthy man to the edge of death, and a weak or a feeble person would likely die. Well, they caught the culprit. It was the king's mother. 
And the king's enemies rejoiced because they thought they had the king on the horns of a dilemma. We've got him, they thought. And their reasoning went this way. The king will have to choose. He will either, because it's his mother, and we know he loves his mother, he must either pardon her, in which case we can say, oh, you talk tough when it's other people, king, but you're not just. You break your word, oh, 40 lashes, but unless it's my mom. And they think they got him that way. Or maybe the king will go through it and he'll put his mother to death because she'll surely die if she receives 40 lashes. In which case, we can say, this is the king who's so cruel, he'll kill his own mom for the sake of the law. We got him. Well, the king said nothing. The court date was set, and you can imagine how many people gathered around to witness the trial, including the king's enemies. And at the trial, his mother came forward, clearly broken, clearly repentant, sorry for what she had done, understanding the punishment that awaited her, willing to receive it, and clearly terrified, knowing that it would kill her. And the court proceeding goes on as usual. The charges are read. The judgment, she's found guilty. And they bring out the, the bosun with the, with the cat of nine tails. And the, and the mother is taken, and she's, there's a bar, and they tie her hands over the bar, forcing her back over. And then there's just a hush in the crowd. He's going to go through with this. <laughs> and the man comes up. And just as he's ready to administer the first lash, the king holds up his hand and he says, stop. And he gets down from his throne and he takes off his robe. And he goes over to his mother and he covers her. And he says, commence with the punishment. And 40 lashings were metered out. And that day, his subjects saw him both as just and justifier. There was no question that day that justice had been done. There was no question, is this a king who values the law? Is this a king who is righteous and upholds the law? Is this a king who looks the other way at sin? No, it's not. But the other question was answered too. Is this a merciful king? Is this a king who loves his mother? Absolutely. God put Jesus forward because sin couldn't be looked the other way. He was publicly crucified in humiliating circumstances to make it clear to the universe our God takes sin seriously. And yet also, it is where God shows his greatest love for us. The angel of the Lord says to Joshua, says to others, take his garments from him. And, and it's just so picturesque of how the Lord has taken our sin. He's taken our iniquity. He's taken them from us. Joshua in this passage, back, back to Zechariah, does nothing. Just like the accuser, he doesn't play a part. He's just there. He's acted upon. The angel of the Lord's directing everything. First, silencing the accuser. Now, okay, get his filthy garments off him. And then he speaks directly to Joshua. And in that sense, you remember, Joshua represents himself. He represents the priesthood. He represents Israel. And as we listen in, this is how God treats us. And here is the word he has given, the word the priesthood has given, the word that Israel has given, and the word to those of us who are in Christ Jesus that we are given. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. You see, point C, not only are his sins removed and not overlooked, but he is given a righteousness that is not his own. He is given a righteousness that is not his own. Sometimes we think of the gospel as simply getting us back to, to square one. You know, we had this great relationship with, Adam, with, with God. You know, Adam and Eve walked with him in the garden, and then we messed that all up. And now Jesus forgives us, and now we're back to where we were. Uh-uh. You have far too small an understanding of the gospel if you think all the gospel is, is it removes our sin. That's half the equation. But notice what the angel does. He not only takes the dirty robes off, he gives him clean ones. Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness. The priest with dirty clothes is given new clothes to wear. Clothes given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the one who cleanses himself, nor is he the one who makes his righteous garment. It is taken from him, it is given to him, all by the angel of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, speaking of this 
in Philippians 3, 8 to 9. And you know this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I found them as filthy clothes in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. How the gospel works is this. The gospel works like this. Jesus takes your filth. He takes your sin. He takes your, your rebellion. He takes it upon himself. He doesn't just leave you there naked. He gives you his own righteousness so that when we stand before the Father's throne, we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We stand in his garments of salvation, as I, Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bridegroom adorns herself with jewels, this is what God has done to me. Okay, quickly, last point. There's one more surprising twist in this story. Zechariah, who up to this point has been a bystander in these visions, he's asking questions, but to the other bystanders, usually him standing on the sidelines with an interpreting angel, hey, what's this mean? Or who are those? Or what's he going to do? Zechariah takes part in the vision. Back to the Columbo scene. It's as though people in the audience are now speaking. You know, out with him and in with this other guy. Zechariah speaks up. I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. As he's watching this happen, as he's heard the announcement of the forgiveness, this, this pardon, this redemption is so great, it's so compelling. Zechariah standing, give him a headdress. And you wonder, what's this turban about? Well, it's, it's the sign for the office of the high priest. We read that in, in Exodus 30, 28, 36. In other words, what Zechariah is doing is he is responding to this announcement by the angel, and he's putting two and two together. If the angel of the Lord's taken his iniquity, and if the angel of the Lord has given him a righteousness, then get this man the signs of his office. For he is the Lord's high priest. Point D, he is divinely installed. He is divinely installed. And so Israel... When Zechariah goes and tells him, knows with certainty, this man, this man who will reestablish the altar, he is chosen by God, ratified by God, installed by God, cleansed by God. The priesthood, chosen by God, installed by God, cleansed by God. The nation, chosen by God, installed by God, cleansed by God. And us, if we have turned to Jesus Christ in, in repentance and faith, if we have looked to him, and he has chosen us, he's installed us, and he has redeemed and cleansed us. Now, I know it's late, but we have got to sing our final song. Because before the throne of God, I have a strong and righteous plea, a great high priest. When Satan tempts me to despair, I'm going to call the worship team up here, just think about that. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We're going we're to sing and... Dave Lample has already given me permission to go a few minutes late. Thank you, Dave. <laughs>